Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we have an all-star panel to talk about the referendum in Macedonia and what it means for the Balkans. A few days ago, the Macedonian people took to the polls to vote on the future name of the Macedonian state as the precursor to a a historic agreement with Greece, which would open the grounds for Macedonia to join NATO and to start its accession negotiations for EU membership. And 90% of Macedonians voted to uh, support those proposals, but they fell short of the threshold of 50% of the population voting in the result. And this has led to lots of soul-searching about what it means for Macedonia, but more fundamentally, whether this has diverted the Balkans from what seemed to be a more optimistic path um, than they've been on for, for, for a number of years, as various different regional conflicts seem to be moving towards uh, a new resolution. To help us make sense of this situation, we're joined by two uh, guests who have just come back from Macedonia. Uh, Robert Cooper is the former Director General for Military Political Affairs at the European, at the European Council and advisor to the to former advisor to the High Representative as well, and um, was int- intimately involved in a lot of the crises in the Balkans in many different capacities, both in the British government and at the EU, um, and was in fact involved in a lot of the bilateral negotiations, particularly between Serbia and Kosovo when he was at the EU. And from Sofia, we have Vesla Chanova, who's Deputy Director of ECFR, also been intimately involved in the Balkans in many different ways, was once uh, the person who was uh, running the, uh, an international commission on the future of the Balkans, but also worked in the Bulgarian foreign ministry uh, on a lot of these issues and has been driving uh, an impressive programme of work at ECFR, which saw her, in fact, um, chair a, a meeting with a lot of the presidents and prime ministers of the region only a, a couple of months ago. Um, Vesla, do you want to go first and, and, and tell us a bit more about the background? What does the referendum mean? Is it a, a, a total disaster for Macedonia and the Balkans? Or uh, is some of the doom and gloom that we've read in the media overblown? Actually, no, I don't think so. And I was really surprised by uh, some of the headlines of the newspapers in in Europe and elsewhere about the referendum, uh, saying that this is a disaster, that this is the end of the process. No, this referendum uh, would have been... um, legally binding if it had had 50% turnout, uh, but now it is a consultative referendum and it uh, brought uh, 650,000 people to the polls and uh, they overwhelmingly voted yes. Um, The next step is for Uh, the constitutional changes to be voted in the parliament. Uh, For that, the government will need a two-third majority, meaning they will need up to 10 MPs from the opposition. And uh, should they not succeed 
with that motion, then uh, uh, Prime Minister Zaev uh, declared that he was going to call early elections. Uh, and, and frankly, I think his uh, calculation is quite right. 650,000 votes is a very large number for a country uh, which has uh, much less than the 2 million uh, citizens, uh, according to the last census, which was very, very long ago. Uh, since then, many people have left the country. And so none of the uh, majoritarian uh, elected presidents of Macedonia has got any more than 500,000. So I think Zaev uh, is correct in, uh, in thinking that he's going to solve the problem either in the parliament or through elections. But to answer your question, I think, uh, no, this was uh, uh, not uh, really a setback. The problem is, of course, that there were a lot of expectations created also by foreigners, but also by the government and through the campaign. Um, and now Zaev will have to make sure that um, he takes into account also the mood in the country um, and the next couple of days will be crucial. The Macedonian opposition will have to show that it can be constructive and it realizes that uh, the agreement with Greece gives a unique chance for Macedonia to catch up for the last lost decade. So, Robert, how, what do you think the way forward is after this referendum? I know you're a big fan of referenda. We've discussed that on the, on the podcast before. <laughs> yeah, uh, broadly, referenda are the work of the devil. But, um, uh, and democratic government with proper debate is a much better system. However, um, uh, this is the constitution. This is how it works in Macedonia. Um, and I absolutely agree with Vesela that this is a good result and this is an extremely good basis for, for Zaev to push ahead as hard as he can. Um, uh, and so what happens next? Well, um, I mean, there you, you have to get into the, probably the dirty end of Macedonian politics, which I don't understand, which will involve uh, uh, getting a sufficient number of members of the opposition to, uh, to, to vote for this. Um, I think if I was a Macedonian politician, I would look at this as being the future and I would want to be associated with it, um, no matter which party you want to be in. I, I suspect the people who are opposing this are really locked in the past. And I think if you want to die a political death, uh, then uh, voting against would be a good way of doing it. And what happens in terms of the next steps in the agreement with Greece as well. I mean, what what does uh, well, the Greeks have to ratify it as well? And, and are we optimistic that that's likely to happen? Um, there's a there's a timing question there because there's an election coming in Greece as well in the spring. So the sooner everybody gets gets this done, the better. And the Greek uh, Prime Minister Tsipras has been uh, pushing this and has made it into. Uh, a big political priority for himself. I mean, how much opposition is there within Greece to, to this? There's quite a lot, yeah. Um, uh, but for the moment, I think he's got the votes. I don't know how you ratify this stuff in Greece. Do you know Vesela? There is a, an opposition 
uh, to that. Nea Demokratia, um, the main uh, centre-right party in Greece, is uh, basically campaigning against the agreement. However, uh, from uh, protocols that were leaked in the press uh, a couple of days ago, it transpired that actually some of the uh, Nea Demokratia leaders have also reached have been reaching out to the Macedonian side in the hope to, per to be able to participate in a negotiated solution. So um, I guess it will also come to uh, the power game and the success of the opposition um, in the elections. But obviously, as Robert said, the closer it gets to the elections, uh, the more difficult it will be uh, for Greece to to ratify. So it needs basically to happen within the next uh, three months. And what do you think we can learn about European policy in the Balkans from the way the referendum worked? Because <clears throat> there was obviously a huge amount of external pressure on Macedonia to vote in favour of this deal, not just from Europeans but from Americans as well, Jim Mattis, the American Secretary of Defence, made a brief appearance in, in Macedonia. There was a, a lot of uh, European uh, political leadership um, um, making its way through the country and encouraging people to, to, to vote. Yes, and it doesn't seem to have had a, an overwhelmingly powerful impact on, on the behavior of the Macedonian people. Well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it hasn't had an overwhelming impact on... on I, but if we knew how many Macedonian voters there were, um, yeah. we'd be able to, to estimate that better. But I agree with Vesela that I don't think that the, the number which voted is negligible at all. Um, supposing the population is 15, is 1.5 million, say, which is probably an overestimate. Um, how many of those are eligible to vote? I don't know what, I, I don't know what the age structure of the population is, but supposing that's 1.2 million eligible to vote. Actually, the number that voted is, maybe it is over 50%. Um, uh, and um, there was, I understand, a, um, a, a social media campaign against. Um, I think that was the main um, part of the, the, the anti-campaign was in social media. And there are stories that part of this may have been done by, there were a lot of new, new accounts opened so it may not have been an entirely... Uh, Free of Russian interference. Uh, that's at least uh, one way of looking at it, yeah. So I don't know that it tells us very much. I, I think that one should still regard this basically as being, as being a positive result. No doubt there were some people who um, don't like the idea of changing the name, um, but on the other hand didn't want to vote against it and stayed away for what you might call good democratic reasons too. So I don't see why, I, I think thresholds are nonsense. People who have an interest in the future of their country should vote anyway. So if we try and take a step back from the kind of internal politics of Macedonia, which you were briefly part of during the, the campaign for, as a result of the visit that, that um, uh, the ECFR delegation organised, um, what is at stake for the wider region? I mean, Macedonia is a pretty small country. It's one of the more peaceful bits of the Balkans. It's kind of unlikely to descend into ethnic warfare in the, in the near future. I mean, what, why is, was this particularly important event for the, 
for the peace and security of the and the political progress of the Balkans more generally? Well, I'll, well, I'll answer briefly. I'll say actually Macedonia was around the year 2000 quite likely to descend into um, ethnic violence. This was one of the, uh, before the Iran nuclear deal came to its conclusion, this was seen as one of the big uh, moments of successful European foreign policy, wasn't it? And it's still, it's actually still the O-ring agreement negotiated by Javier Solana with assistance from George Robertson um, uh, is still actually the um, the kind of the key touchstone in Macedonian politics. So there's a kind of bit of European pride involved, but actually it's a question of, of here's a country solving its problems. Um, doesn't happen that often. Uh, maybe it's a useful precedent for others to follow. I think it's a really positive thing. And Vesta, how are other people looking at the result? Because obviously, uh, you know, on the one hand, as we've discussed so far, 90% is not to be sneezed at. Most people would like to win uh, votes by 90%. But at the same time, it, it was a failure because it didn't hit the 50% threshold, even if that was a dubious threshold that had been set for dubious reasons. Um, it, it, it's at least contested result, and we're in the middle of a kind of war of interpretations about it. What are the different interpretations across the Balkans region? Well, Macedonia is interesting from that perspective, particularly, I think, because um, it can trigger a kind of a positive domino, which is something, uh, it's a construction which is very uh, <laughs> uncommon, let's say, in the Balkans. Um, and by that, I mean that the sheer idea that two countries can agree on something as big and symbolic as the name of one of them, um, after so many years of fruitless discussions, um, could uh, make things uh, in perspective look uh, different also elsewhere. Um, there are more than 10 bilateral disputes uh, in the Western Balkans. Uh, some of them have been unresolved for many years. Some of them are invented. Uh, of course, uh, we also have the big issue of Serbia-Kosovo. Um, and I think a resolution to the name issue would uh, make all those uh, disputes look more solvable in a way, but also would make uh, local politicians be forced to use more common sense when, when do those things. Um, on the other hand, should that somehow go wrong, uh, which I still think is the uh, is the less probable scenario, but should um, the agreement between Macedonia and Greece end up uh, not being ratified, then uh, we can really see a negative uh, um, effect of that. And we have been told by our interlocutors in Skopje at a very high level that people are worried. Um, this is a state with two uh, dominating ethnicities. Um, one of them, uh, the Albanians, could really have uh, second thoughts and other ideas about their sense of belonging uh, to Macedonia, especially while people start discussing redrawing borders uh, in the Balkans uh, with regard to Serbia-Kosovo. And so 
I think we have to be um, aware that while this is not a very probable scenario, it's still a possible one. And uh, uh, the Macedonian statehood obviously is something that uh, um, one, uh, one has to consider as central for many uh, countries in the region. And um, maybe Vesela, maybe I could, maybe I could interrupt to say that I was struck when we were there by what the main Albanian interlocutor we we had said to us uh, when actually he he mentioned himself the um, the the question of some kind of deal between Serbia and Kosovo over exchange of territory, um, and he dismissed it and said uh, it's not our business. Um, our business is making Macedonia work. And I thought that was a really, a really healthy thing to say. Um, and if you put that together with what I take as being uh, Prime Minister Zaev's um, uh, positive approach to solving the problems and trying to move the country forward, I think that's really encouraging background. Sure, but the Albanian also, the our Albanian interlocutor also said, should this agreement not work, they, we cannot exclude radical voices from coming out and becoming stronger. And frankly, also watching the interpretations of the referendum in the past couple of days um, in the Macedonian media, uh, you can see more and more. Albanian voices coming out and asking what is that they need to really think about uh, should that not work. And I think this is a significant uh, um, f factor to take into account when we discuss the region. Should we, is it worth um, pausing a little bit on this Serbia-Kosovo front? Because A, I mean, obviously it's the biggest and the most kind of uh, symbolic, I think, of the of the bilateral disputes, given that Serbia's importance in the region and the kind of deep shadow which uh, the Kosovo war has left um, uh, across the region. But also, because the two of you have been to Pristina, and Robert, I know when you were working for, for Kathy Ashton when she was high rep, you spent quite a lot of your time trying to, to bridge that gap between Pristina and, and Belgrade. Um, it would be really interesting to to hear both how you think the Macedonian referendum impacts on that, but also maybe just to talk a bit more widely about where that uh, dispute has got to and, and what the prospects are now. I spent a lot of my time when I was working with Cathy Ashton uh, saying to people that the idea of a territorial swap was uh, out of the question. Um, and the reason I said that was not because of any um, views about the morality or immorality of doing this, but was just because politics is the art of the possible, and at that point it seemed to be impossible in Kosovo. Um, uh, if it's become possible in Kosovo, and that hasn't really been tested, um, uh, then it's an idea that seems to me um, at least worth exploring. Um, and I don't think one should exaggerate how far the talks have gone. Um, I think it's already a positive thing um, that Vucic and Thatchy 
uh, talking to each other. They got to know each other well, of course, when Vucic was, uh, when Thatcher was, was, was prime minister um, and was doing the uh, negotiations with Cathy Ashton. So maybe there's a little bit of personal confidence there. Um, the fact that they're talking to each other and talking now about problems which are very serious and very difficult, um, that already seems to me to be a positive thing. Now we'll, this is a complicated question and I don't think that it can be done quickly or easily. So uh, I think we should let them talk and see where they get to. Vesa, what's your take on, on the future? You've been quite vocal against the idea of swap, swaps of territory. Uh. I have been very nervous about um, the, 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 the very fact that people talk about uh, changing borders uh, and redrawing borders along ethnic lines so easily. This has not been a good thing in the Balkans. And um, what we found out in Pristina is that actually um, there are um, many voices uh, also within Kosovo who oppose uh, this idea, but also who understand the regional implications of it. Um, however, we we also found out that uh, this does not seem to be a very uh, serious talk in the sense that uh, they're really not discussing details and there is really um, also little understanding of what people on the ground would like to see. And by that I mean people in Preševo, people in Mitrovica. Um, and I think this is uh, obviously something one should start by by doing, and this work still needs to be done if uh, if they're serious about about discussing this option. But as Robert said, we don't think there is much happening right now. I, I don't know. Well, just to say, I don't know about that. Um, I, I do think that before this idea, which is. Um, it's not, not an original idea. I think there have been several Serbian governments that have toyed with the idea in the past. Before that becomes a reality, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but I think, that they, I, I think that they are actually serious about exploring this. But what we don't know is how far they'll be able to get, because I think it will involve, uh, if it was to turn into a real proposal, I think it will involve some difficult decisions on both sides. And I mean, there is a sort of certain uh, bias, I'd say, uh, against changing borders and uh, within Europe for fear of it starting off a. Uh, I mean, the th you know, starting off a kind of um, catalogue of, of different demands from different places. So we tend to have a bias against changing borders but at the same time we did recognize uh, Kosovo. Well we didn't just recognize it we established the border ourselves exactly. um, and if you look at uh, now um, Vesela's country may be an exception to this but if you look at our countries quite a lot of them have got borders which in some sense are ethnically defined. Um, I'm thinking of Northern Ireland that's essentially a not very well defined uh, I mean, it's very difficult to be precise there, but that's an ethnically defined border. There is still divide. I mean, it's combined with an attempt to create a multi-ethnic 
settlement on, uh, in yeah. Northern Ireland. Right. Well. First, you, first you agree the border, <laughs> then you make it irrelevant. I like this formula. It's, what, it's what's been done. But it's been done all over Europe. And the, the classical example is Schleswig-Holstein, um, or Schleswig, actually, where they um, held a referendum in every village. Everyone talks about the Schleswig-Holstein question. What is that? It's about Schleswig rather than Schleswig-Holstein. Well, it's about the border between Denmark and, Denmark and Germany. Um, uh, after the Danes um, made the mistake of taking on Prussia and Austria at the same time in 1865 and were more or less wiped out. Um, the border was moved um, uh, right into Denmark. At the end of World War I, when there was a general sorting out of borders, um, uh, they uh, proposed a border which had been worked out by demographers and they held referenda all along the border in every little town and village about where they should be. Which is which is not something that seems to be at all uh, in the style of uh, Balkan politicians. I mean, I don't see Vucic going out to pressure when asking people there if they want to go over to Kosovo. And frankly, I have difficulties imagining that they would. But um, this is the dif- this is probably one of the small differences between Denmark and, uh, <laughs> and Serbia and Kosovo. Actually, there was a big fight in Denmark, but I won't go into the history there. There was a big fight about the, the border when it took place. So there was a question of whether Flensburg should be on which side of the border. So maybe, well, after this rather uh, nice little excursion into, into Europe's darker past, maybe we can think about the, <laughs> the future of the Balkans in that kind of context. Um, I mean, we looked at two out of the ten kind of big issues which are working their way through the system. Um, but I suppose one of the the bigger questions is um, what Europeans should be striving for in this region. Because we had one paradigm immediately after the wars in Yugoslavia, which was one of integration and enlargement and uh, we were deeply embedded in the domestic politics of a lot of the Balkan countries, particularly the ones which were protectorates like Bosnia and Kosovo. I mean, maybe I can go back to, back to Denmark and to Northern Ireland yeah. and say um, uh, what is absolutely clear in Denmark is that um, all of the rights of minorities are very well protected on both sides of the border. Um, and indeed, there's an Anglo-Danish agreement about, about that, dating from the Ardenauer era. era. Um, and as we know in Northern Ireland, that the, the basis of the, uh, of the Good Friday Agreement and the uh, peace we have in Northern Ireland at the moment is that the border will be um, invisible. Yeah. Um, so, Currently uh, being tested... Uh, uh, definitely, um, but um, uh, so I think that um, whatever solution is found, um, uh, those are things which need to be. Uh, uh, those are things which will go with whatever solution there is. Uh, I don't think that it's quite like that at the moment, actually. But if we if we look at the sort of bigger picture about European interests, you know, immediately after the the war, there was a kind of focus obviously on questions of war and peace. Now people are more focused on migration and migrant routes, on organised crime. Um, And there's also 
uh, a lot of fear in different member states about the increased activism of other actors. We talked about Russia in the Macedonian election. Russia's obviously never left the region, has always been a very important part of, of, of the politics of the region, but it's maybe becoming more visible than it was in the early noughties. Um, China is obviously becoming a really important factor for both the infrastructure of the region because of the Belt and Road Initiative, but also um, the political calculations of a lot of leaders seem to be influenced by a desire to attract Chinese investment. Um, and that's happening at the same time where you know, there's much less enthusiasm about and you could add the you could throw the Gulf in there too. The as Gulf well, and the Turks is the is the other. Yeah, the Turks never actually do very much. But let's let's leave that aside. Okay, we'll talk leave the a Turks lot. Aside. Yes. Okay, we'll leave the Turks aside for for another podcast maybe. Um, but what it'd be interesting to hear from the two of you about that sort of bigger picture and and what the the role of Europe is within this more sort of contested space where um, there are obvious links up with direct European security interests through organised crime and migration, but it's not the, necessarily the same level of fear about ethnic warfare that there was um, uh, around the turn of the century. Yes, I think uh, the European interest is twofold. One is to keep uh, the Western Balkans within the zone of European rules and norms um, and and kind of you know keep the region close to to the EU's chest, no matter uh, whether we use the instrument of enlargement or another instrument. Um, because I agree with you, there is a lot of uh, fatigue uh, about enlargement currently. In any case, Europe, this is kind of too close for Europe not to do things properly here. Um, this is one, and second. Europe also has interest so that this region remains stable, that uh, people don't uh, kill each other, but also that there is um, um, a kind of a coexistence, um, a multi-ethnic model uh, that functions uh, in the region because it is just too much of a patchwork uh, really to to do the, <laughs> uh, the ethnic homogenization. Um, and so I think uh, for the sake... I think consolidation is the term which is uh, preferred at the moment. Can I, can I add to that? First of all, I agree with everything Vesel has said. Second, when I was in Croatia, in, in Zagreb in 1989, when we were looking around to try and work out what was going to happen, I remember somebody saying to me, well, the only way we'll ever make this place work, which was then Yugoslavia, is... Uh, to break it up and put it back together again in the EU. Um, and then, in the 1990s, um, uh, uh, actually at the Dayton conference, um, if you ask some of those who were present, they'll tell you that actually the key figure there uh, was in the end Carl Bildt. Not Richard Holbrook, who gets all the credit. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, Richard Holbrook wrote the book, but, um, but the point about Carl Bildt was that actually the idea that they might one day become a part of the European Union was, uh, was very important at Dayton and has been very important ever since through Thessaloniki. Um, and, um, 
the process is slow, but well, there we are. It's Europe we're talking about, and it's not built in a day. Um, but this still remains the right course. Okay. Um, Vesa, do you want to say a last word about, about um, what you think Europeans can do now in the, in the next few months ahead? And then we, we, I think we're running out of time, so we should, uh, should move on to the bookshelf segment. I think we should, uh, um, first of all, uh, we should be less less alarmist about uh, the Macedonian internal situation. Uh, Macedonians will, I hope, uh, make this work. It's uh, their country and it's their fate. Um, and of course, uh, people should try to help them from the outside. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I, I trust that they will... Uh, um, make it work um, in the right way. Second, um, I think we should start looking for uh, ways how to use this energy and this desire to talk about the future of Kosovo Serbia. Um, I think uh, there should be a much more pronounced uh, European role, but uh, in a slightly uh, more calibrated manner, uh, rather than just as uh, facilitator and uh, and host and somebody who provides the room and the coffee. Um, and from that perspective, I think there is also a role for us uh, think tanks uh, to to do more thinking on what can be done and how we can help with ideas without just saying, you know, status quo is what we need to stick to. Okay, so um, thank you very much. So we, we do still need to do the, the bookshelf segment, but before we do that, I might just remind our listeners of a famous quote by Lord Palmerston, uh, the former British statesman, uh, about the Schleswig-Holstein question. He said, it's so complicated that only three men in Europe have ever understood it. One was Prince Albert, who's dead. The second was a German professor who became mad. I'm the third, and I've forgotten all about it. But um, luckily, Robert Cooper has, uh, has changed that situation, and now we all understand the Schleswig-Holstein question. Uh, anyway, um, going to our final po- uh, point of action is, is, the, is the bookshelf segment. Vessel, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I will tell you what I was reading when we were traveling uh, to the region. I pulled uh, out the report of the International Commission on the Balkan Wars. This was the Carnegie Commission from 1913. I encourage everybody who is uh, slightly interested in the region to look back at it. Uh, It gives a lot of answers uh, to questions which are still open and why why talking about ethnicities and borders in the region is something that is that is that can be fairly contagious. Okay, what about you, Robert? Well, I'm reading three books. So I'll go through them rather quickly. Okay. I'm in the middle, roughly almost in the middle of all of them. Um, the first one is by Kori Shake, K-O-R-I, Shake, spelt like it's German, um, called Safe Passage. Um, it's about how um, Britain and the USA resolved their differences during the 19th century um, to avoid the... Uh, sort of Thucydides clash between the rising power and the existing power. Uh, Second, it's actually a great book, very interesting. Um, uh, Second, um, I'm reading one of those things that I should have read years ago, but I never did, um, uh, The Master and Margarita, 
and it's very difficult to put it down. Fantastic. Um, and third, uh, and this is what I was reading because it's very light, I'm reading a monograph by Dr. John Adamson about a picture by Peter Paul Rubens. Peter Paul Rubens was um, uh, not just a painter, he was actually uh, the Spanish ambassador. He was appointed as an envoy of the Spanish government to the court of Charles I. And the picture, uh, the picture is full of um, uh, iconography of um, uh, Spanish or rather Habsburg uh, relations with, uh, uh, with Britain and France. Wonderful. All of these, very interesting. Um, so I need to uh, do something more prosaic and do a bit of log rolling on behalf of, uh, of Robert and Vesla. So they're two great pieces on our website which are well worth reading. Breaking Old Habits in the Balkans by none other than Robert Cooper and Macedonia's Looming War of Interpretations by Vesla Chanova. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do uh, let other people know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your Facebook page or ours, but above all by rushing to the ratings and review section on iTunes and giving us a review and a rating. And we will put links up to all of the publications that we've mentioned on our webpage, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Robert Cooper, Vesla Chanova, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Harkenbosch, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.